I want to know why people voted for this person. I remember um, reading the results coming in and getting more and more uh, upset and terrified. I'm, I'm very indifferent. At some point, I, I really didn't care about voting at all. I really didn't think that as a civilization <laughs> that we would encourage that. Um, so I was very disappointed with the results. This is Skinny Trees, an exploration of health inequities in and around Chicago, episode two. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Skinny Trees, episode number two. We are thankful that you all helped us make it through our first episode, and we are here again ready to bring you, hopefully, some engaging and thought-provoking content. I'm one of the hosts, Jen. Hi, everybody, and this is Shania. Thanks for joining us. Um, We know that a lot has changed politically since our last episode. The United States has gone to the polls, um, and we do have a new president-elect, as I'm sure everyone is aware of by now. Um, For some, this has been a welcome change, and others, not so much. Um, For me personally, the election has shown me a different side of America, but one that I personally feel like I needed to see. So I'm interested. Like, Jen, how are you feeling since the election? Um, It's been rough. It's been a rough past few weeks, and I think it's been... Um, No matter who you align yourself with in terms of your political views, I just think any election period is a time of stress for the nation because things are changing and transitioning. But I think this one in particular is going down in the history books. Um, So I think, you know, trying to stay positive about what's positive about what's going to happen, but also a little nervous and a little a little frightened by um, some of the rhetoric that is coming out of president-elect Trump's campaign. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, and I'm, I've just been really following CNN and these other media or news outlets, and I'm, at this point, like literally today, I feel confused because um, our president-elect is going or, or sort of retracting a lot of the things that he said he was going to do. So I don't know what his stance is because he made a lot of statements during his campaign. And so now he's like, well, I'm actually not gonna do those things or actually, you know, I I believe sort of in Obamacare or I wanna keep this sort of a law or I'm going to build a wall, but I'm not gonna do this. So I don't actually know what he's going to do and who he really is. And that's actually makes me a little bit nervous. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion is coming into play. So even people that voted for him and who are historically Republican are now just really confused and he's appointing people to his cabinet that are very interesting that I think is creating further confusion um it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting so we'll have to continue following it maybe on the podcast we can give some updates obviously this is a huge thing that's going to be happening to the country and this very much so greatly affects the communities that we work with and the communities that this podcast was kind of built on people that are vulnerable populations that sometimes are considered invisible by political parties or uh, state government or whatnot. So we really have to kind of follow this through and see what happens. And we have to be mindful that um, we really need to look out for one another, regardless of who is going to be the next president. We, We should all be looking out for each other. But this makes me think I just wanted to give a shout out to Rage Donate, which is a website 
that is um, so I I guess I should back up have you heard of rage donations it's a term that has popped up over the last few weeks that is really interesting no I haven't heard of rage donations tell, tell me more about that and so there's a website called rage donate and it is a website that people can go to to uh, basically donate to a variety of different nonprofits um, that all stem from lewd or inappropriate comments made by Trump. So all of his comments about immigrants or Mexican-Americans or whatnot, those comments are on this website and then linked to web websites for nonprofits where you can go and donate to support immigrant health or immigrant rights or whatnot. That's just one example. Wow. So kind of interesting. Um, I think that's one of the interesting things about this election is that a lot of things are coming out of it that we haven't seen before, and that I think is a good example of one of them. And really, since our podcast focuses on health inequities, we really wanted to bring our, your attention to some issues that are currently brewing about the fate of the Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA, and of course, widely known as Obamacare. Um, we all know that it's been stated by President-elect Trump during his campaign that he would repeal the Affordable Care Act in his first 90 days in office. Um, but lately it seems that Trump is recanting some of his statements. CNN reports that Trump told the Wall Street Journal, and we quote that he was reconsidering his stance after his meeting with Obama, who urged him to protect parts of the law. Trump then said he would like to keep the provision forbidding discrimination based on pre-existing conditions and to allow young Americans to remain on their parents' health care plans. Trump said that either Obamacare will be amended or repealed and replaced. He said, acknowledging that it was Obama um, who encouraged him to con reconsider. I don't know. What do you think about that, Jen? Um, well, I think we all know that the ACA has a lot of issues, and I remember when the marketplace was rolled out. I think it was, what, maybe 2013, 2012? I'm not sure. Um, I remember it was crashing and there were so many issues with the site. And then now I think they've gotten those logistical problems figured out. But people are still really confused how to sign up and how to maneuver that site. Um, I have a, I was just talking to one of my close friends last night, and she is a very, you know, the quintessential sort of example of um, this, this just definitely is not working for her. So she was recently employed by a nonprofit that didn't provide employer-based insurance, so she had to get a plan through the marketplace or through the exchange. And... She was paying, I think it was four to five hundred dollars a month for her insurance through the ACA, her ACA plan. And she's somebody that, you know, is very much so a middle class um, adult. She doesn't make a ton of money. She doesn't make a small amount of money, but she certainly makes probably just enough to get by as as her, you know, one single person. And she talked on and on about it, how it's been so difficult to have an ACA plan and how, even with the plan and okay if you set aside the fact that you're paying all this money as a premium and so on and so forth a lot of the hospitals specifically in chicago and, and i'm assuming elsewhere are starting to not take aca plans so she had mm -hmm. so she was receiving a lot of her care at rush she got a letter in the mail saying that her aca plan was not going to be supported anymore by rush and if she wanted to continue to go to Russia, she needed to switch plans. And so it's just, it's been a mess. And I think people are really frustrated by that. 
Um, and it's hard for me to, to kind of relate because I've always had employer-based insurance where the premiums are pretty decent and the insurance plans are pretty decent and it's, you know, we can kind of go different places and we have options of an HMO versus a PPO. And so I think people are frustrated, but I don't want to negate the fact that the ACA has done amazing things. Yeah, I mean, and you bring up some really great points because um, we were able to pull some pretty amazing statistics um, which I don't think speaks to kind of the story you just told, but I mean, I will read this for you guys. Um, between October 2013 and early 2016, apparently the uninsured rate among black non-Hispanics dropped by more than 50%, uh, corresponding to about 3 million adults gaining coverage um, through ACA, and also the uninsured rate among Hispanics dropped by more than 25%. Um, corresponding to about 4 million Hispanic adults gaining coverage. The uninsured rate among white non-Hispanics declined by more than 50%, corresponding to about 8.9 million adults gaining coverage. So it does seem that the ACA or Obamacare, whatever you want to call it, has done some good. But we actually have a wonderful guest that's going to come on the show today, and I think she can probably speak to... I guess some of the failures of the ACA and how it relates to the immigrant population, because I've heard her talk about it before, um, and it, she's going to bring a, a very interesting perspective. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Yeah, and you mentioned the statistics of individuals that have been brought now um, into you know the insurance marketplace, but I also just want to mention that the ACA has also provided the opportunity for people 26 and under to stay on their parents' insurance, which is something that benefits everybody. And I think parents can definitely say that this is a huge benefit, especially now that, you know, Generation X. Where are we now? Is it X, Y? I don't know. Z? Is it X or Y? Is it X, Y? Generation X, X, <laughs> X, Y chromosome? Um, millennials. Okay. Yeah, let's Basically, millennials. we... We're millennials. We know. I think we're millennials. Yeah, we are millennials. Yeah. But we know that it's not as common for people to just kind of flow through the normal sequence, right? So in our parents' generation, they graduated high school. Maybe they went to college or they went to some sort of trade school. And then they got a job and had a family and all that stuff. Our generation's a little bit different. And so I think it's more common for people to be finishing undergraduate or, or now more graduate school and kind of have that in-between transition period around this age, 25, 26, where they don't have a job, but they're looking for a job. They're just fresh out of college um, and they need health insurance. So I think that that is so amazing, and that's what the ACA was able to provide us. They also, it also expanded Medicaid in, I think, now like 35 states. The states had the opportunity to do Medicaid expansion. Illinois was one of those states, and I know that because of that, a lot of people were brought into the healthcare system, which is phenomenal. We also know that the ACA provides prescription drug discounts. They did uh, some different things for physicians where perhaps physicians are paid based on value and not necessarily volume of patients. It also expanded coverage for early retirees. Um, and then, of course, one of my favorite, the pre-existing conditions. A person cannot be denied insurance coverage because of pre-existing conditions. And so, I mean, this, this, is, this is a step in the right direction, even though we have all of these problems. So I guess we'll have to see what the new 
the new group of folks that are moving into the White House decide to do. But Shania, I, okay, so this kind of goes with, with, this definitely is in line with the Trump, the new Trump cabinet. And it's something that I am not entirely familiar with. So I, obviously, as many people know, I'm a white middle-class woman who grew up uh, kind of near Midway Airport, but then predominantly in the Southwest suburbs. And so I never had issues with immigration status. I never had issues with um, living that life or going through that journey. And I know that there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about that. We're going to build a wall. We're going to do all of this stuff. We're, um, you know, we're going to have a, a huge magnifying glass over a lot of the immigrant populations in the U.S., and I think that a lot of our listeners may fall into that category. So I just want to take a moment and talk really quickly about something that I heard on the news lately, and that is Chicago is a sanctuary city. Yeah, um, that's so true. Um, we are definitely, there's, I guess there's, we have to do research on this, but there's a number of like sort of sanctuary cities um, around the states. And so what is it though? What is a sanctuary? I, I like don't even know. A sanctuary city, um, her, my small research is a name given to a city in the United States that follows certain procedures that shelters illegal immigrants. Um, and so these procedures can be by law or they can be by action. Oh, wow. That's insane. Okay. And so Chicago is a sanctuary city. And I know that recently there was a press conference at Northwestern, um, which is where we are. And this is where I actually started learning more about what this is. It was at the Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital. It was organized by the Illinois Business Immigration Coalition. I'm looking at my notes right now. And um, Mayor Rahm Emanuel sought to reassure undocumented immigrants that Chicago will remain a so-called sanctuary city. So some, some, uh, some discussions about that. Chicago, I know, is so rich, specifically with Hispanic populations. That is why I love Chicago. Trump's um, slogan was like, make America great again. But I think a presidential candidate should be mindful about appealing to all Americans or all people that are in the United States because we have to admit that I'm not sure what make America great again means because for many of our vulnerable populations that we talk about on this podcast, America was never great, right? So there's a whole, so I'm a black woman and so there my ethnicity and like my history does not speak to America ever being great for my people. So one in seven people way back in the day were owned by other people, right? So when you talk about making America great again, that already cuts out like minority population and, you know, people of ethnic background. So I think that's what today's episode is going to get at. We're going to continue to talk about how, what can we do to truly, I guess, make America great, period, like for people that never experienced that greatness. Well, we have a lot of thinking to do. Dr. Linda Ray Murray received her medical training from the University of Illinois at Chicago and has held many titles throughout her years of service, including the Chief Medical Officer of Primary Care and Community Health at Cook County, Chief Medical Officer of the Ambulatory and Community Health Network of the American Public Health Association, and several medical positions in Canada and locally, specifically at Near North and Woodlawn Health Centers in Chicago. She has been a long-standing active voice in the community, serving as a strong advocate for healthcare as a human right and improved education in the U.S., specifically for those of color. Let's go to the interview. 
for joining us today. No problem. All right, so we have done a little bit of research on you, so we're just gonna, this is gonna be a casual conversation. So the first question is, um, we found a really good article that was, I think, published in the American Journal of Public Health in February of 2011, and it was written by Danya Lee Curry, and you were quoted as saying, sometimes it pays to break the rules and to go where you're not supposed to go and see what's there. The article goes on to say that you were then, at that time when you said the quote, you were chief medical officer for the Cook County Department of Public Health and the Cook County Health and Hospital System. And that particular quote was said during an April Grand Round session for area public health students and workers. You are a mentor, you're a public health leader, and a self-described revolutionary. And Danya quotes you as tireless in your activism. You worked with Harold Washington. You were the medical director of a labor federation in Canada, a medical director of the American Public Health Association. So a reoccurring theme throughout your career has been servicing the under or uninsured patient populations. And specifically, you've done a lot of work here in Chicago. So can you talk a little bit about what that has been like and why you say it pays to break the rules sometimes? And we're in, we're part of the millennial generation. So how can we apply that? Well, I think the first thing to realize is what the rules are. So what the rules are, and I unfortunately they haven't changed that much for little black girls are you, you know, get a job, a low wage job and don't cause trouble. And maybe if you're really, really hardworking and bright, maybe you, maybe you might be a teacher, you know, maybe you might be a nurse. So the expectation for people of color in this country, the rules for people of color in this country is be quiet, be obedient, and work. That, those are the rules. So um, if you don't break the rules, uh, if we didn't break the rules, we'd still be picking cotton as slaves. So I, I think that uh, we don't have a choice. I think, I think that's the secret that young people uh, who are poor, who are of color, who are marginalized in any way have to remember uh, the purpose uh, that they have in life is to is to break the rules. That's the that's the whole point. That's how history moves forward, and especially for people that are oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, my great grandmother uh, was born after slavery, and uh, she spent some time with us when we were little. Lived with us when we were little for a few years, and her position was very simple. She said, "White people will always try to keep you down." If you stand up, they will knock you down. And the only question you have to answer in life is how often you stand up. So that's sort of been my view, and that's been my experience. I, the, the world will not be nice to you if you don't insist on it. That makes sense. So I want to look at the article because I thought this was interesting. There's another quote that you say. Um, I should have highlighted. That would have been like the good host. I don't know, Jen, did you want to ask a question while I locate a quote? Well, I guess I just, you know, I'm thinking... What what kind of advice would you give? So I, I grew up in a low-income neighborhood, and I was the only white kid, more or less, in school. I grew up in a Latino neighborhood. And so I was raised not... I mean, I knew I was white, but I've always been raised to sort of not be seen as the bad guy, more or less. And so I guess my question is, what kind of advice would you give specifically to non-minority people that really want to kind of stand next to minority populations to fight the good fight. Well, you, you, the, the secret is in what you said. Um, mo- so, you know, what my great-grandmother didn't expound to us when we were little children uh, was, uh, you know, a theory of structural racism. I actually think she understood that. So um, 
one of the big problems one of the, that we've seen in the election recently is that um, people come to, Caucasians come to this country and they become white. The United States invented whiteness in many ways, mm-hmm. not completely by itself. Um, but the reality is most people in this country who are white are also oppressed. They don't know it. They, they accept their white privilege in lieu of equal opportunity and, and justice. So, so to me, that's the key question. I don't think it's a, I don't think, I think of course solidarity is important. So, so for me, for example, I'm very interested and have tried to send some monetary support to Standing Rock. So I think it's important to um, understand and show solidarity with people's struggles all over the world. Um, and so in that spirit, yes, I think that that white students or white people in the United States need to do that. But they need to be clear uh, that uh, their ability to live a good life, their liberation is tied up with everybody else's. So the reality mm-hmm. is, you know, maybe Bill Gates' kids, but I mean, you know, the, 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 the number of white people who are not oppressed by this economic system and are not hurting by this system are is a tiny, tiny fraction. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been the historic division that's been used in the United States to try to, to try to privilege some people over others. And I don't, I don't want to pretend, I, let me be clear here, white privilege is real. And so even working class whites, they do benefit from white privilege. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. But what I am saying is uh, what they have to understand is the benefits are not equal across mm-hmm. uh, the white race. So um, it's not just a question of showing solidarity with, with the struggles of people of color in this country or indigenous peoples or whatever. It's a question of understanding how our common uh, uh, future are tied together and mm-hmm. fighting together right. for that common future. Right. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, right. oh, that's the question. Uh, that it's, is it's the, hard. It that is, is the question. question. I don't yeah. know if anyone knows how to answer that one. Um, so we want to kind of, we don't really want to focus on the election, but we can't not talk about it um, because there's so much going on in relation to that. Um, but we wanted to get your view, um, and in talking about, I guess, white privilege, and so many people have opinions on the demographic of people that Donald Trump was able to kind of rile up and get them excited and maybe that's why he won we don't know but we just want to ask you a question what's on your heart in relation to the election and health care well let me let me first say that uh, donald trump may be a crude expression of um political positions uh that we haven't quite seen in a few decades but he stands within the Republican tradition. The Republicans made a decision to appeal to racism. The fact that some candidates, presidential candidates, have done it more subtly than others. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been too subtle to me. And it has obviously been subtle to the electorate because they, they get these little clues. So, so that's the first thing. So, so even though I think that Donald Trump it represents important departures and will result in some important setbacks. I don't want I don't want to suggest that he's unique or out of touch or out of the stream with the Republicans. And in fact, let me just say, since we're talking about the elections, I did not consider him the most dangerous candidate in the Republican mm-hmm. primary. I would have been far more distressed uh, with uh, Cruz, for example, uh, who's more ideological and, and ordered. And I hope that nothing happens to Mr. Trump while he's president because I am more afraid of Vice President Pence. So, so having said, said that, um, however, I do think there are important differences. Politicians that enthusiastically articulate a neoliberal agenda 
I don't think Trump is the worst. Uh, he may be relatively crude, but um, I do think his campaign has emboldened uh, the racist uh, sentiments in the country, uh, and, and I don't I don't consider that a minor thing as a black woman. Um, I think that uh, I have friends that have you know seen the Nazi salute handed to them. I have friends that have been yelled that we're sending you back to Mexico or, you know, threaten them. So I, so this is not something that is minimal. I don't want to minimize that. Donald Trump is not the biggest threat to, to the American healthcare system. The Republican, this is, think about it. This is the Republican Party on the election of uh, Barack Obama, not a revolutionary, okay, just the ordinary uh, centrist Democrat. Uh, on his election, decided they were not going to do anything. They were going to be completely obstructionist, a historic kind of obstruction based, I think, on his race, so they never use those words, but I think it's clear. Um, but they have ideological differences about what we should do about health care. Uh, these, are these aren't stupid people. If you don't understand this, you get in trouble. They're not stupid. They're not evil. They don't want people to die in the streets. Now, their policies will result in more people dying, okay, but that's not their goal. Um, they believe that the market... The, this is this neoliberal ideology. They believe that the market is the best arbiter for all things, including health care. Um, and uh, it's an ideological belief. Uh, it goes against what the rest of the world believes, that health care is a basic human right. Um, but that's, so that's an ideological position. The Republicans, I forgot how many times, they, they voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which is not the solution. The Affordable Care Act is a, a reform and, and a poorly crafted reform. Um, it, it was poorly crafted at the beginning. Uh, when we sent uh, Barack to D.C., he supported single payer, but, you know, that's, that's not what he supported as a, as a president. I, do, I think that the, uh, uh, one of the surprising things that happened with the Affordable Care Act is almost half the states, a little less than half the states, refused to expand Medicaid, which in the first couple of years didn't cost them anything. They did this on an ideological position, that, uh, that they didn't feel uh, that government should be doing that. Um, so, so this is not a surprise. Um, I think for those of us that care about health, when you try to half-step, if you try to half-step across a puddle, you still end up in the muddy puddle if you half-step. So I, I think that in this day and age, a single-payer system is the minimal reform, and it is still a reform. It's the minimal reform we can expect to do any significant good uh, over any long period of time. It's, it's the most efficient way to organize medical care, which is only a small piece of health care, but in, in our country, an expensive uh, piece. So I expect uh, Medicaid to be rolled back uh, in a number of states. I wouldn't be surprised if there was an effort to block grant uh, Medicaid, uh, which uh, I think, again, in at least half the country will result in, in worse health care and less coverage for, for very poor people. The number of Americans, and this is, goes back to something you had mentioned earlier, the number of Americans who think they have good health care, those of us, uh, well, I'm retired now, but those people who have it through their jobs, that number has been falling steadily for the past 30 years. So every year it goes down by a few percent. Um, when people have good health care, it's called Cadillac insurance now. Uh, 
most of the health plans on the on the ACA marketplace are horrible insurance plans. The, the premiums are expensive, even when they subsidize it. They don't cover anything. You know, the deductibles are big. Uh, so the reality is we remain the only industrialized country, now that South Africa has an attempt to have universal coverage, that doesn't have universal coverage and has a, and, and we have huge numbers of people with no insurance still or under insurance. Um, so now I don't want to detract from the things that, Medic, that the ACA has done. They've done some important minor reforms, like uh, trying to address pre-existing conditions. Uh, but um, overall, I would say the ACA did not really try to regulate the insurance industry. There was basically a capitulation to the insurance industry and, and to pharmaceuticals. And so that means that it was going to continue to be very expensive, that premiums are going to rise. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to keep in this sort of fee-for-service model, which is not my favorite model, you have to have strong uh, regulation on the insurance industry and pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. And unless you have that, you can't make significant reform. And, of course, what we need is not reform. We need, in fact, to have universal uh, free at the point of access medical services for people. Can you can you talk really briefly about sort of how you've seen the insurance system change throughout your years in medicine? Were these, I mean, I'm sure that these were issues that have been consistent, but has it gotten worse? Oh, there's no question. I think that it's gotten worse. It, it, it's gotten more expensive. Uh, the number of people who were who are covered uh, has shrunk, but there are lots of reasons for that. You know, as as labor, as the strength of labor unions decreased in the past thirty years, then your ability to organize and and uh, make sure that uh, you have health insurance as part of your wage decreased. So there are lots of reasons for that. The industry changed. Um, you know, so so, uh, but it's an interesting history. So, for example. When HMOs were first discussed, it was a socialist plot. I'd like to keep that in mind. Now, today we consider it an evil cabal of capitalism. But it's, it's a question of how you organize. But clearly, having some prepaid system, having things organized, having standards of care, these are all important issues. And so one of the, one of the problems that health policy wonks have is they think they can take a complicated system and fix a little piece and not and not see a reaction somewhere else in the system. Mm -hmm. um, but we have some fundamental, so, so for example, I think one of the fundamental reforms that needs to happen is you need to get rid of fee-for-service. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about fee-for-service. Fee-for-service is an incentive to continually go to the doctor. Uh, and uh, so that, I mean, right away, that's, a, that's an incentive that doesn't make sense. Uh, there's no incentive financially for prevention. There's no understanding or agreement in this country that, of what really makes people sick. So having a low waste job makes you sick. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter if you eat vegetables <laughs> all the time. I mean, I mean that you know that's better, I guess, than eating candy all the time. But um, what we do as individuals has such a small impact on 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 the health of uh, ourselves and certainly of populations. So the insurance industry has consolidated. It's just like a normal capitalist enterprise. There, there, it's consolidated. You have, uh, you know, huge companies that that take up most of the market. There are parts of the country where there's a small population, and you might have one insurance company offering coverage. So again, people, Americans, mythical notion that they have choice. Most people with excellent health insurance work for a big company. They don't have choice, and the company decides what what. HMOs and insurance systems they're going to use from one year to the next. So one year, 
you may you may be with a doctor that you've had for 10 years and the next year if they have a different contract that doctor could be out of the network so we just have so many myths we don't have parity uh, we don't treat behavioral health and mental health at the same level of physical health we don't treat dental health at the same level as physical health so the, the our entire system is irrational because it's designed to make money and profits it's good for that but it's it's not good for helping the health of a population do you think there's a model healthcare system? I don't think there's a perfect healthcare system. I think you can pick any other healthcare system and it'll be better than ours. So, you know, <laughs> so so in, so in my crude way of thinking, for example, I consider the Canadian health system maybe the second worst in the world. But if we had the Canadian health center system tomorrow, I would I would die happy. I'd be I'd be ecstatic. I did practice in Canada for several years, and uh, you know, there wherever you go when you're traveling, they do get extra insurance when they cross the border to the United States. But other than that. <laughs> You know, when they move, when they travel, they're automatically covered. Uh, you know, it's not a, the physicians know whoever they see they're going to get paid for. Um, and uh, it, it's uh, basically, uh, uh, they, they've dealt with the problem of how you finance. We've been arguing about how you move money around the medical system. So the Canadian system, even though I don't, you know, it has its problems, it does that much better than we do. They still have other kind of problems. Uh, I forgot what percent, a huge percent of their population live within 100 miles of the U.S.-Canada border. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you go further north, you have distribution problems. There are major shortages in, in physicians and nurses and other technical people. So there, so there are real challenges. How do, you, how do you serve rural communities? How do you serve the indigenous communities? How, how do you do that in a way that's equitable? Uh, so I don't mean to say it's perfect. Um, every system I know of in the world has problems and challenges uh, that they have to deal with but they at least address some basic issues. One, you try to provide universal medical services that are free at the point of service for your residents, mm -hmm. okay? And, and we have not accomplished that basic thing. There are other great things, like I would like to know how to address uh, obesity or, or how do you keep teenage kids from uh, having sex prematurely and, and passing around uh, sexually transmitted. I mean, there are lots of interesting questions in healthcare that should be far more fascinating than, you know, how you get paid for uh, mm -hmm. seeing a patient. Uh, so we want to talk a little bit about education. I know we've heard you, you're a strong advocate for education, obviously, um, and specifically for minority students. Um, and you've been a consistent voice in advocating for pipeline programming. So can you tell us a little bit about your views on how to structure these sorts of things um, so that we're truly educating students in a meaningful and impactful way. I, I don't know, you probably don't remember, but I was sitting at a table with you and um, there was Regine Rucker. She was over like the CTE programming, I think for science and mathematics or something at CPS. And you were passionately telling her how you kind of thought these certificate programs and medical assistant uh, things were not necessary and they were steering students in the wrong direction. So can you, can you talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure. So um, first, let me, let's go back and we have to think about what education means. This, for, for African Americans, for black people in the United States who are the descendants of slaves, this is an important historical debate in our community. Um, and that is, do you educate people to take jobs that white people want you to take? So imagine after emancipation. Do you teach people how to be carpenters or how to be butlers and all, you know, and, and fill the jobs that white people have decided black people should fill? Or do you educate people with the notion that this is the best way to secure 
your emancipation and democracy. So that's a different kind of education. Um, they're not uh, they're not mutually exclusive. You can learn a skill through which you can feed yourself while still being educated in a way that enhances democracy. So this basic debate, because uh, don't forget, it, it's it, in large part, it's the struggle of emancipated slaves that helped secure free public education, universal public education, especially in the South. Okay, So what does it mean to make a decision that you're going to educate, not train, educate your population? Um, you know, that means you, that, that democracy is enhanced. You don't just allow landowners, white male landowners, to vote, you know. So if you don't have an educated populace, you really cannot secure democracy and justice. So that's, that's my first thinking about all of this. So I think we, we in the United States have been struggling with this, and we, and we have been going backwards. Okay. Um, education has degenerated. Uh, in this country. Uh, look at what's in the popular media, you know. Uh, is college worth, worth the price? Well, it depends on what you think college is for, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and when you travel, and I haven't traveled that much, but when you travel in Europe, you travel in Greece, you may have somebody that's working as what we would consider a blue-collar job, but they are well-educated. Mm -hmm. They understand literature and art and um, and they're very well educated, even though their profession, their, their career might be uh, an auto mechanic uh, or some other you know, basic industry kind of career. So I think our notions about education are completely screwed up. So that's the first thing. And so we underfund our education system. Not just in the hood, because your education system even in the private education, it's only as good as your public education system. All you have to do, if, you, if you're running a private school or you're running a faith-based school, all you have to do is be a little bit better than the public system to attract students, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. So, I, so what I'm going to tell you is that, um, I can't even remember the name of that. What's that big school that's near the historical society? Lat the Latin school, mm -hmm. for okay. So... I'm going to tell you that the education in the Latin school is worse than it used to be, probably, okay, because the public system has fallen down, okay. Um, and also, I think you have to have different criteria uh, when you think about it. So if you're not educating, if you're not trying to tell children how to behave, if, you, if your idea is we need to train children, we need to tell them how to behave, we need to slot them into their appropriate place in society, made medical assistant, okay, then uh, that's not education in my opinion. That's training. So I'm upset over the Chicago Public Schools because your doctors do not go to these career medical high school, health high schools, okay? Your doctors, your nurses, your physical therapists, which are, is, a, is a PhD level uh, thing nowadays, they are not going there. Okay, they, they go to Whitney Young and they go to Peyton and they go to the selective high schools. They're not in something in the ninth grade that tells them you're going to be a medical assistant and you'll be able to get a job when you graduate, which is what we do to our kids. So, so I think all you have to do is look at those schools. Okay, just look at where the health schools are and what they're doing. Okay. It doesn't have, and then what, what sense does it make to have a ninth grader be in a health school? Okay. What, what is a, I don't even under even if even if a small number of them 
end up in in health professions. Do you really think the ninth graders know in the ninth grade what they want to do? Shouldn't the shouldn't the, shouldn't they have to study literature and art just as much as somebody who wants to be an artist or a rapper? And shouldn't the rapper study math and science? So I, so at high school we're at such a basic level. I reject this tracking of students. Uh, I don't like it in general. Uh, there was just a little study that came out from the University of Chicago that argued that poor kids that got into the selective high schools in, in Chicago appeared to maybe do worse than poor kids who didn't. Okay, That's because we're focusing on the wrong things. So we need to pay teachers more. We need to have smaller classrooms, much smaller class sizes. We need to have libraries. The city of Chicago, most schools don't have a library, so help me understand that. Okay, Most families, do not, except on their cell phone, they do not have a... Uh, access to the internet. Why? This is a big, wealthy city. Why can't we have that available for everyone? There's no reason why. Okay. These are public airways. So pipeline programs are a poor substitute for the fact that we don't have a good education system. Okay. I didn't know, I had no, I'm not a person that wanted to be a doctor from when I was a little girl. I came here to go to school. I had no intention of going into medicine. It was not in my mind at all. I was a math major, and I thought I was going to be a teacher. Uh, and only in college did I make the decision to try to go to medical school. And I can't think of very many of my high school classmates or even college classmates that didn't change a major, okay, or, did, or perhaps ended up in something that they didn't, they didn't know about. Um, so I'm much inter- what I am interested in for high school students, though, is having them engage in the real world uh, and having them meet people. One of my pipeline successes didn't come from a pipeline program. This is a young black man who was going to a historically black college, and he was a math major. And he came to work at our health center for Project Brotherhood in a, for a summer. He was, a, he was hired for a summer program. His job was to supervise and mentor a group of high school black boys. Mm-hmm. Okay, And part of their tasks uh, was to listen to health workers, health, lectures on community health. Um, and he was a math major. He had absolutely no interest. He didn't like blood. He had no interest in going to health care. Okay. Uh, so when you really think about it, here's a young black man. I mean, most, most of our kids are math phobic. Uh, they don't have sciences. you know. So I remember um, talking to him, and, and he was being very clear but polite that he had no interest in going into health care. You know, which is fine, but not everybody has to be in health. But I asked him, I said, well, have you ever thought about epidemiology, which is an important basic science of public health, which has to do with the study of disease patterns? He had never heard of the word. So I think he was a junior by then. So I told him, I said, well, you know, we're going to have, in, in uh, next week, we're going to have one of the best epidemiologists. This was Steve Whitman, who's now dead. He's going to come and talk and talk to the, to the high school students, okay? And I remember that day, and, and you know, and one of his jobs, so his job, so you have a bunch of teenage boys. Do, are, do they care about any of these lectures? No. So, you know, one of, the, one of John's tasks was, okay, you need, to, you need to get a piece of paper, you need to get a pencil, you know, pull up your pants, sit down, look at the speaker. I mean, he was training, look at the speaker, pretend to take notes, even if you, you know, you know and, make, and try to think of a question to ask. Don't just sit up there like so. This so he was doing what he normally did. 
And Dr. Whitman, Steve was so good uh, he, that that the students, they stopped taking notes because they got really interested in what he was talking about because he was able to break down these epidemiological concepts. You know, he was basically, well, you're a young black man. You may die early, and here's what, you know, and he, he so he was talking about patterns of diseases in black men. And the, the, the uh, math major, the college student, is sitting there listening. And I saw him go up to Steve. I told him, you know, talk to him. He went up to Steve Whitman after everything was over with, and he spent probably 45 minutes. I don't know what they talked about. Never, but he spent 45 minutes or an hour with Steve Whitman. So the next thing I know, he graduated. He, he applied to the school, schools of public health. He's now an epidemiologist. He had no notion that that was a health career. Okay. So you don't, you don't pigeonhole kids right away. Um, so one of the things about pipeline programs, even the ones that exist, I think it's a mistake to, to do them the way we do. We should, we should expose our health pipeline. We should expose them to, law, to lawyers that work in health care. We should expose them to medical illustrators. Okay. I, mean, I know, you're, you know everybody's mommy and daddy wants them to be a doctor, but who cares about that? That's not, we don't need just doctors. So if we were really educating our children, the pipeline programs would all be the same, okay? So these pipeline programs where we take college kids and stick them in some bench lab, uh, that's, I'm not against that, but you need to put them some other places because health is not, doesn't go on in a bench lab. Um, and so, so I think that, and we should make a conscious effort to expose them to other professions uh, than the traditional health professions because so many other, you know, finance people, uh, managers all have major impact and work in the healthcare industry. And then even if they don't, let's say you become an architect. If you actually have some exposure to health issues or, or aging issues or other issues, when you become an architect, you can be a better architect, you know? So, so this notion of a broad liberal arts education, I think is critical to democracy. And there's absolutely no reason why we don't do that better. Um, so, so I do get upset with the Chicago Public Schools because I think what they do is horrible. I'm upset with Malcolm X. If you, can't, if you don't have a career ladder, if you go to Malcolm X and you become an EKG technician, county just laid off all of its EKG technicians because nurses can do it or whatever. You know, I mean, you, you don't train people like that. You don't learn how to work on an on a, uh, automobile in 1950. You can't do anything today. My car, the problems I have with my car are software problems. So... So, so you so you need people broadly educated so that they can learn and be trained on a wide variety of things depending on the needs uh, of the society and certainly their their personal preferences and desires. Um, so I don't think we do. I think we do a disservice to our children in the education system. No matter, I don't care what kind of school they go to, and I think we do a special disservice to poor kids in the Chicago system where they are basically tracked for low-paying, low-wage jobs. So can you talk, we, we want to talk a little bit about um, community-based organizations. I don't know that much about Project Brotherhood, but I've heard it. I know Melissa talks about Project Brotherhood sometimes, but can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about what it is? What do you all do? Well, so you asked two general questions. Let me not talk about community-based organizations, because okay. I think what most people lump together, anything that's non-governmental. Project Brotherhood, I'm going to get my years wrong. Eric Whitaker uh, had this idea for Project Brotherhood years ago. He was a young black physician, was interested in the health of black men, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so he was working in our system uh, as a physician. Also, another part of our system, 
Cook County system is a trauma unit where they see mostly young black and brown men, not exclusively, but mostly, who get shot, stabbed in an accident, whatever, and are in the trauma unit. And they were distressed for two reasons. One is they had many repeat visitors. And secondly, they would occasionally find people with other health problems. They had trouble getting their, their patients to go to another place for their health care. Um, you know, uh, at that point in history, young black men were, were less likely to be on Medicaid. And so they were disturbed. They said, yeah, nobody cares about. So the trauma people said, nobody cares about our patients. That's right. You know, what? So the trauma department gave to Woodlawn Health Center, where Dr. Whitaker was working, and I, I happened to be, I think, a $30,000 just as a seed grant to say, okay, what, what can we do about this? And um, we had a multidisciplinary team. We had social workers. We had nurses. We had physicians uh, on that team. Um, and we said, well, what, what would a service for black men look like? So the first thing that group did was, uh, uh, with that money, was focus groups. They hired black male social workers to facilitate the focus groups. They hired a couple of University of Chicago black male medical students. That, you know, so they, hi- they had uh, uh, Marcus Murray, who's now the executive director, was a college student at that point. They hired, they hired a couple of college students just to help have these focus groups. And they had focus groups. They had, you know gay black men, black men in the church, young black men, old black men. They had, they had like 11 or 12 different focus groups. And they did the focus groups. And they asked them, well, what do you think being healthy means? Or what, what don't you like? What do you like? And again, some of this was not a surprise. So one of the things that happens in healthcare is designed, women go to healthcare. It's, it's just not just black men. Men don't like going to the doctor. They don't like going to health. You come in, they treat you bad. When they tell you to sit down, you know, that, Men have, you know, patience problems. So the reality is that, that uh, black men felt disrespected. I think this is true generically, but certainly in the county, they, feel, they felt disrespected. They felt no one listened to them. Uh, they didn't like going to, through the process. Uh, they didn't like how they were addressed. They didn't trust it. They gathered all this information and they constructed a program, uh, which still meets on Thursday evenings, where... They had a whole series of activities. You could come to Project Brotherhood on Thursday evening. They, when they had better funding, they had food. <laughs> okay. You could come there. You could hang out. There would be some discussion maybe about some health issues. But, that, but in general, there would be just discussion about issues of the day. And you could see a doctor. Okay. So I've always had a, until recently, I've always, in the, certainly in the early years, I saw patients there. Because the doctors, that we had a concentration of black professionals. So, because uh, there aren't that many black doctors, even in the county system. So doctors would come from other clinics and volunteer there or, or work there that Thursday evening. Uh, social workers, they were able to pay some social workers, but we had health administrators in our system that were men. They would come, they would come, they, didn't get, they would come extra on Thursday evening. We had people from the community, lawyers from the community who would come in and talk about what to do if you get arrested. You know, so they had, so they had this collection of people that's the theory behind Project Brotherhood. Design a program that pays attention to your patients. Okay. So the fact that you could come to Project Brotherhood, get help typing up, a, think, of, think of, now this was before online stuff so much, but think about going for a job and having a resume. Just think about what that means if you're an unemployed young black man. First of all, do you even have access to a typewriter or a printer or a Xerox machine? 
even if you knew how to write a resume. Mm-hmm. So one of the things they did is they had resume service. They would, they would help them write up a resume. They, would, they could come. They could get it printed. They could make 30 copies. They could make, you know, um, they, had, they had help with getting a, a job interview. So that was just as important as whether you got your blood pressure checked. And there was no pressure to get your blood pressure checked. Okay. We would, people would, you know, we would encourage people to get their blood, but there was no pressure. So I still in the neighborhood, I still walk around and, and run into people that know me from Project Brotherhood. Okay. Um, so that model required extra funding. So today Project Brotherhood still meets on Thursday, but the funding has been shifted. So there's no food there. Now, and the other thing that I thought was brilliant that, that the young men thought of, we had a barber there. So we had a barber. So again, we were able to pay the barber, but it wasn't like what they would get in a barber shop. But we paid them. They paid, got paid when they had grant. Like they, the barber would come, and you would have that was the most, one of the most popular. But again, if you're going for a job interview, the ability to get a haircut free for the patients. You know, um, they had a philosophy where everybody that worked in the clinic was trained. So, for example, the barbers were trained in HIV education. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and they, they went through the Red Cross train because again, you're sitting there talking to them. And so now this work, they, they, they still have, they had a network of barbershops on the South, predominantly on the South side where they trained barbers in HIV education and in colon cancer prevention. They would periodically get grants to train the barbers because that's what goes on in a barbershop. Right. You talk about everything. Uh, I think, I think probably for me, which is again, an indication of how we misuse the understanding of education. Project Brotherhood has uh, always presented and published papers, uh, certainly presented at APHA many times. And one time, the barber, and so this is a young man with a high school diploma. I think maybe he did one or two years of college, but he's basically a barber at that point. Um, he got upset. He, he, got, he said, you know, I want to go to APHA. I want to present a paper. Because, you know, we have our young residents and our social workers, everybody presenting. He said, I want to present. And he didn't tell me this. I want to present a paper at APHA. So they worked with him, and they told him, you know, you have to get your stuff together because, you know, you can't be Dr. Murray. It's going to be on you if you mess it up. So the next thing, he put, it, he put his abstract in. It got accepted. Um, and, uh, and, and that group helped him and he, and I, I did not go to his presentation, but I heard from friends that said, how did you get a barber to present? And he evidently gave a very credible presentation. I don't, I don't even remember what it was about. Something, it was something around HIV. So the point is, if you have an approach that involves community health workers, that involves people that are not in a traditional health professions, and if you act like you have sense, and understand that you're taking care of a community, not just an individual patient. And understand what those patients need. Uh, you know, so you know, it doesn't do you any good to talk about exercising when if you go out and run in certain neighborhoods, you, you're in danger. Okay, or the cops stop you because they think you're running from something. You know, whatever. So I just I just think our concept of health is too narrow, and Project Brotherhood is just one of many excellent programs and examples that broadens the concept of health. And these are the kinds of things that should be supported. If we're really serious about making an impact on black men's health, we'd have settings for them to get the help that they need and stay healthy. Uh, We do this, we do this a little bit more for women. Think about how many programs exist for, to prevent teenage pregnancy. 
Well, they don't get pregnant by themselves. So, and in fact, the original funding, the, the basic funding for, for Project Brotherhood for years was Title 10, which is normally used for family planning for women. But they had a little tiny portion of it that where you could have a men's program. And that's really what funded it. And that makes sense. Um, we had uh, parenting classes. Uh, how, how do you be a father? How do you be a father when you're a non-custodial father? When people graduated from those classes, families would come. The place would be packed um, and because this was often the only thing that they had graduated from. You know? So I think, I think the fact that that program is not as funded as it used to be is a sad thing. But, but more importantly, I think the fact that we don't have similar programs around uh, the country uh, on, on, on other issues uh, makes, it, makes it hard for people. Their health care it's not just what their physiological measurements are when they come into the doctor's office. And there's no reason why community health centers, just like community schools, can't be a place where resources are concentrated and people can get help. I totally agree. Yeah. I think, so we want to let you enjoy the rest of your Friday. I think we could probably sit here all I know, we do for sure. and all day and chat with <laughs> you about amazing. a variety of different things. But um, I just have one last question, and I think this is a favorite question of Shania's. But what is your favorite book and why? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm really trying to think about how to answer that uh, intelligently. Um, mm. Let me let me just let me let me just let me. I can't give you one book. Um, let me just say a little bit about reading and, and the role. When I read for pure pleasure and I read fiction, I read what I consider junk fiction, science fiction, which, in case you don't know, is a very conservative, almost neo-fascist kind of genre in general. You know, what I mean, it's a very conservative. John. But, you know, it's a reflection of my age. And, you know, I mean, I grew up, Sputnik went up, you know, so it's a reflection of my youth. And I still read fantasy science fiction uh, for fun. Not as much as I'd like to, but the the books that I read most that I enjoy reading that I don't have to read for some professional thing is is history. Um, And I suppose if I had to pick one, uh, I, I, let me give you two titles that I think uh, profoundly, uh, you know, help me understand things. One is Reconstruction. I, I, I've read that three or four times. Uh, I probably should need to read it again. We're in a, so Du Bois's Black Reconstruction, I think, is a, is a wonderful book that really allows one to see how, why this country functions the way it does now. Because it's during that period of Reconstruction uh, I know it's, this is probably my historian friends would kill me, but but in many ways I think that's such a critical period of history, and I don't and I think we're still in that period of yeah. tension. And the other book that I that helped me, uh, and this again you have to understand what books you read. I mean, what books impact you is a reflection of your areas of ignorance. So Black Reconstruction I read years ago when I was in college, but I've reread it many several times and find it always useful. Um, the other book that I read late in my career uh, is In the Shadow of the Poor House by Michael Katz. Now, there's nothing magic about that book. I think it's very well written, and it really talks about the historical roots of welfare and, and um, how we think about poor people. But for me, having you know, left college and had to pursue a, a medical degree in public health, you know, this this is a classic in, I guess, sociology people read it. Like. So it's a classic in that field. But, you know, I, it's not a classic in my field. Um, yeah. So I so I hadn't had a chance to read it. I, and, again, I think that that book 
crystallizes uh, a lot of sort of New Deal kind of, uh, I think it's, a, it's an excellent understanding of what's going on. So I think, uh, I think we tend to think of books as though they're pieces of music or something, you know? What book have you... Now, the real question is, can you find the books you need at whatever moment you're at, okay? And can you revisit, yeah. can you revisit books that you've read? Okay, so when I first read Philadelphia Negro, I was, I, I was superficially interested in just, you know, some historical aspects of it. When I reread it as a public health person, I said, oh, this is, this is perfect for any public health class that's doing uh, community health assessments because it's really one of the first ones. So what I encourage people to do is read, read as much as you can, uh, and, and read widely. Uh, I, I almost don't care because a good novel will give you some historical information uh, just as much as a, as a nonfiction mm-hmm. uh, book. Um, so... Uh, you know, so when my son was young, I didn't care whether he was reading Playboy or porn as long as he was reading. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, but if that's, if, you know, who cares? Um, read. That's the main thing. <laughs> well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are honestly truly an innovator, and we, we really do appreciate you taking the time to talk No problem. Thank you. Wow, that was a really great episode, and we just want to thank Dr. Murray again for allowing us to come through. And so before we end this episode, we want to talk about our listener feedback. Last episode, we talked to Dr. Simon about Whole Foods opening in the Southside community of Inglewood. Dr. Simon shared how she thought this was a worthy initiative. She also expressed hopes that Whole Foods Inglewood would employ people from the community and accept WIC vouchers. We want to thank one of our listeners for commenting in our SoundCloud inbox and informing us that Whole Foods Inglewood does, in fact, have an almost fully staffed store with workers from the Inglewood community and that they do, in fact, accept WIC vouchers and the link card. Women, Infant, and Children is a federally funded program implemented by the City of Chicago Department of Public Health that provides pregnant, breastfeeding, postpartum women, children, and infants with nutrition assistance. And the link card also provides food stamps to those in need. Yeah, thank you. And we hope, obviously, that you enjoyed this episode. Keep the feedback coming. And remember to check out our website, www.skinnytreespodcast.com, for show notes. And if you are an undergraduate student and needing a summer opportunity, check out chicagocheck.org for information on the Chicago Czech Summer Research Fellows Program. And before we get out of here, guys, we want to thank Kurt Swan Jr. from Eastern Illinois University for submitting his music to be featured on this month's episode. He is responsible for the melodious piano you hear in the background. So thank you, Kurt. We also want to thank our NEIU podcast correspondent, Diane Lee, for doing the interviews that you heard at the very beginning of the episode. We will be uploading those interviews in their entirety at a later date. So thank you so much, Diane, for that work. Always remember, be kind, be different, and be great. 
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.